Genesis chapter 8 is the sermon text for today, and also we will read Revelation 12, verses 13 through 17. The thing that both of these texts have in common is the mention of floodwaters. Genesis 8, starting in verse 1, we'll read the whole chapter. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he set forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your daughters' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, Day and night shall not cease. Let us go now to Revelation chapter 12 and look at verses 13 through 17. This text should be familiar to you. We have recently concluded a study of the book of Revelation. And here, as I said, uh, floodwaters are mentioned. And here the thing I wish wish to emphasize is uh, that God has the ability even still to preserve His people from the flood. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. 
The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. He stood on the sand of the sea. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May the Lord bless now the preaching of it and our application of it to our lives today. As we come now to the end of the flood narrative, I wish to focus in upon the answer that the story gives to the question, what will God do in response to the sin of humanity? Uh, This question, the question, what will God do in response to the sin of humanity, seems to me to be the central question answered by the story of the flood. And, And here is why. In Genesis 3, the sin of Adam and Eve is described. In Genesis 4, we are told of the spread of sin amongst the descendants of Adam and Eve. By the middle of Genesis 6, we learn that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And moreover, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And so the question that is raised in these chapters is, what will God do? in response to the wickedness of man. And the flood event provides the answer to this question. I would ask that you pay careful attention to the way that I have worded that question, though. I am not merely asking what did God do in response to the sin of humanity. Instead, I'm asking what will God do in response to the sin of humanity. And by asking the question in that way, clearly it reveals that my view is that the flood narrative of Genesis 6-9 through to the end of chapter 8 answers both questions. Uh, When we read this story, not only do we learn about what God did in response to the sin of humanity in those days, in the days of Noah, but we also learn something about what God will do. Only one word differentiates the first question from the second. What, God, what did God do and what will God do? But the, the assumption undergirding each of these questions are very different. If after considering the flood narrative of Genesis 6, 9 and following, we ask what did God do in response to the sin of humanity, are we not assuming that the flood event was merely historical? Merely historical. The assumption is that what we have in Genesis 6, 9 and following is a simple and straightforward retelling of a historical event and nothing more. But if after considering the flood narrative we ask, what will God do in response to the sin of humanity? Then it becomes apparent that we view the flood as being more than a common and ordinary historical event, but one that was also prototypical, one that was symbolic, one that was in a way prophetic. And so, yes, it is my opinion that the flood actually happened. But I'm saying that it happened as it did by God's design so that the event itself revealed what God would do in the future long after the flood waters receded. This is what we mean when we talk about redemptive history. You've heard me use that phrase before, I'm sure. Uh, There is history, but there is redemptive history. And when we are talking about redemptive history, we are talking about those events that have to do with the salvation that God has provided for His people. 
And if, we, and if we pay careful attention to the events of redemptive history, we find that they are often prototypical, symbolic, and they have a prophetic aspect to them. They are forward-looking also. The vast majority of historical events are just that. They are historical events. On Thursday, I watched my son David play in a basketball game. In 1776, the Declaration of Independence was published. Uh, one of those events is slightly more significant than the other, but they share this in common. They are historical events and nothing more. There is record of these events having happened, I'm sure. We might learn something about them through historical inquiry, but they are not prototypes. They are not symbolic or prophetic of events that will happen later. They are not any of those things. They are just historical events. Uh, the events of redemptive history are different, though. Not only are they real historical events, but, but Christ and the salvation that would be earned by Him is also pictured in them. Take, for example, the way that the Christ was pictured in the Passover event. You're familiar with the Passover event, no doubt. Remember that the angel of death passed through all of Egypt to kill the firstborn, but those who had the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their houses were shielded and spared. You remember that story from the book of Exodus. That really happened. It was a real historical event in the same way that my son's basketball game and the signing of the Declaration were real historical events. But in the Passover event, we find something more. There we find a picture of Christ. And the salvation that is found in Him by His shed blood and through faith in His name. That event was redemptive. That event was designed by God to function as a picture of things that would happen later on. Consider also the way that Christ was pictured by the manna and the water from the rock which was provided for the people of Israel in the wilderness. Do you remember that story? Those two were real historical events and yet Christ was typified or symbolized in them. And unless you, th unless you think I'm playing fast and loose with the text of Scripture, when I find pictures of Christ and the salvation that is found in Him in these events of history, I will cite the New Testament Scriptures to demonstrate that this is how the Scriptures themselves interpret these events. For example, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 writes these words, he says to the Corinthians, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. What is Paul talking about here when he's referring to these events? He's referring to the events of the Exodus. Israel was led by the cloud. They passed through the sea. They ate the manna. They drank the water which flowed from the rock. Now listen very carefully to Paul's interpretation of these things. As he continues in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Do you hear it? Paul is looking back at these historical events, these events in redemptive history, and he is saying that Christ was there Christ was present with the people. He was pictured in, the in these events. He was typified by these events. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples. The Greek word is tupos. It means models, types for us. 
that we might not desire evil as they did. 1 Corinthians 10, 1-6. He is saying that these historical events, they were real. But Christ was present there with His people, and Christ was typified in these events. These events serve as models for us, so that we might see how God is bringing about His salvation in the world. What did Paul see when he considered these historical events? Israel's eating of the manna from heaven and their drinking of the water from the rock, etc., etc. He saw Christ there. Christ was typified. The New Testament interprets the flood narrative in the same way. It views the flood as an historical event, but one that also sets a pattern for things yet to come. Our Lord Jesus Christ spoke of His return and the final judgment in this way, Matthew 24, 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. And then He says this concerning His return and the final judgment. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Do you see it? Jesus Himself is looking back upon the the flood narrative, and He is saying it's prototypical. It sets a pattern. It, It communicates something. Not only does it communicate history, Uh, Not only does it tell us what happened then, but it tells us something of of what will happen in the future. There is something prophetic about the flood narrative of Genesis 6-9 through to the end of chapter 8. This is Christ's view of it. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. The story of the flood and of Noah's deliverance from it in the ark was a preview and a picture of the judgment that will come upon the world at the end of time. Our salvation and the renewal of all things, heaven and earth, in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is why I do not ask the question, what did God do in response to the sin of humanity? But rather, what will God do in response to the sin of humanity? The flood narrative provides answers to both the historical question and also the future question. What will God do in response to the sin of humanity? We learn three things. One, God will surely judge. Two, God will save His people in His chosen vehicle. Three, God will make all things new. Uh, This gospel has been communicated in words, but what I am saying is that God has also demonstrated this gospel through certain historical events, the flood being one such event. First of all, the story of the flood demonstrates that God will surely judge the wicked. This is clearly demonstrated in the flood narrative. God poured out a type of judgment on the world of the ungodly in the days of Noah, and by this it is demonstrated that God will surely judge the wicked to all eternity on the last day. I want you to take special note of the patience of God displayed in the years leading up to the flood. This should not be overlooked. Adam fell. He did not immediately die, but went on living. Sin was multiplied in the wicked line of Cain, and God did not judge them immediately, but displayed patience. Sin prevailed upon the earth to the point that the whole earth was filled with corruption, and yet God was patient year after year, decade after decade, century after century. God is patient. 
Take note of the mercy and kindness of God displayed in the years leading up to the flood also. What did we learn from Jesus' words? Uh, Those who were living in wickedness prior to the days of the flood, what were they doing? But they were eating and drinking, and they were marrying and being given in marriage, right? Here these wicked sinners, these rebels, were enjoying the good things of this world. And God is patient, and He was also merciful to them in the days leading up to the flood. Take also note of the mercy of God after the flood. In fact, when we look at this flood narrative and come to Genesis chapter 8, 26 and following, we see that God promises in that passage there uh, to, to not flood the earth again. And notice the reason given. Uh, God promises to not flood the earth again, not because man is all of a sudden better than he was before. Uh, that is not it at all, but out of His mercy. He promises to not flood the earth again. Noah offers an offering up to God. And God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. In other words, the ground has already been cursed. It will not be cursed even more so. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. It is not that man is now better than he was before. Still, this is true. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever Again, strike down every living creature as I have done by the flood waters. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So God, in His mercy, uh, is leaving room for something. He's leaving room for the accomplishment of His salvation. He's leaving room for the gathering in of His people. He is showing mercy even to those whose hearts are wicked from birth. Men and women enjoyed the good things of God in this world, and yet they blasphemed His holy name prior to the flood, and this they continue to do, and yet God is merciful. Take note that God warned that the flood of judgment would come. Uh, Certainly there were warnings. People noticed that Moses was building a very large boat. Uh, Certainly Noah was a herald of righteousness and and warned, but only, only seven entered into that ark with him. Most did not heed his warnings. Notice also the swiftness of God's judgment in the days of Noah. Noah warned for decades, and then the floodwaters came. Noah and his family entered the ark. The door was sealed, and it was too late for the unbelieving world. Friends, the same story is unfolding in this present world. That is the point that I am making. Creation, fall, Redemption, judgment, salvation provided by God. That, that, that narrative that has just unfolded before us from Genesis 1 through to the end of chapter 8, that, that pattern that has been established, it is being reproduced even now. Uh, here we are living in a world that's filled with wickedness. The gospel is going forth. Warnings of God's future judgment are going forth. Uh, a, a vehicle has been provided for salvation, right? Some hear and enter in many mock at the thought of entering into such a vehicle. But one day God will come and He will judge the wicked and He will bring His people safely home. God is patient. He is merciful and kind. He has issued His warning that judgment day is coming and when it comes, it will come very swiftly. This is what we learn from the flood narrative. And I want you to listen to the words of Peter in 2 Peter 3. 
he looks at the flood narrative and comes to the very same conclusion and makes the very same application. I want to read 2 Peter 3, verses 1-13. through 13. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the command of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. We are living in the last days, and not just us, but all who have lived from the time of Christ's first coming to the second coming. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And in other words, where is God? You say He is going to return and judge, but where is He? This is how they will scoff. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed, that is, the world that once was, was deluged with water and perished. Here Peter is referring to the flood. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. In other words, Peter is saying, remember how things happened in the world that once was, from the time of creation to the time of the flood. That same pattern is is going to be repeated in the world that now is, in the world that now is. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up, this time not for water, but for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, Peter says, Beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In other words, Peter is writing to Christians saying, "Why, why is there this delay? Why has He not returned already? It is because of the patience of God. He is not wishing that any of His people should be lost, but is delaying so that they might come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise... We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is what we are waiting for if you are in Christ. And so what do we see in the story of the flood except a demonstration of what God will do in this present world? He will do in this present world what He did in the world that then existed. After displaying patience, after showing mercy, and after warning of the judgment to come, He will pour out His wrath on the ungodly. This time the judgment will be not with water, but with fire. Secondly, the flood demonstrates that God will save His people in and by His chosen vehicle. God provided a type of salvation for Noah and his family, didn't He? He provided salvation for them from the flood waters in the ark, which God commanded Noah to build. 
and by this it is demonstrated that God will save His people to all eternity in and by His chosen vehicle, namely in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice that Noah and his family were chosen by God. The very first thing that we are told about Noah is that he found grace in the sight of God. God showed him favor. Noah and his family were set apart as holy from the nations. I will not repeat all that I said about the distinction between clean and unclean that was imposed upon Noah and his family, but that was meant to communicate that this people here is a holy people. This people is being set off from the nations as distinct. The same thing will happen to Israel under Moses, but it was imposed upon Noah to communicate that Noah and his family were set, about, set apart as holy from the nations. Notice that seven were saved on that ark, not including Noah. And why were those seven saved except for this? They had a relationship to Noah. They were in a privileged place. They were set apart as holy and they were saved from the waters of the flood because they had a relationship with Noah who was a righteous representative, a righteous federal head. And they were saved, notice, by going into the vehicle appointed by God to be sheltered from the wrath of God poured out. Noah and his family were saved through the ark in an earthly way. But Noah knew that he would be saved spiritually and eternally through shedding of blood and by the sacrifice of another. How can I make that statement so boldly? Uh, What was the very first thing that Noah did after disembarking from that ark? What did he do? He built an altar. And he offered up sacrifice unto the Lord. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird. Remember, he brought more of those on the ark with him, I think for food, but especially for this purpose, he offered them up as a burnt offering on the altar. Genesis 8.20 This was an offering of thanksgiving, no doubt. Can you imagine how grateful Noah was to have been saved in this way? This was an offering of thanksgiving, But it was was also an offering of propitiation. There Noah shed blood, the blood of another, on the altar. And we know that these sacrifices, all of them from from the time of of Adam on to the time of Christ, were pictures of the Christ to come that, that eventually, one day, this seed of the woman that was promised before Adam and Eve would come and that he would be the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. We know that Noah... Uh, received a righteousness that was not his own. Hebrews 11 tells us this. How, How did he do that except by placing his faith in the promises of God and ultimately in the Christ who would one day come. And here he worships according to the prescribed pattern given to him by God. And as he worships, he is acknowledging, if I am to be saved to all eternity, I had better have my sins washed away. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So they were saved in a way. They were saved from floodwaters in a vehicle provided by God. But all of this typified Christ. All of this symbolized Christ. All of this communicated, even though I'm sure the message was rather dim compared to how bright it is for us today. All of this communicated that if you are to be saved to all eternity, if you are to be sheltered from the wrath of God to be poured out at the end of time, you had be better be found in the Christ, united to Him by faith. Have you ever done a word study on that little phrase, in Christ or in Him? Uh, it's really 
fascinating to look and to see how many times we are exhorted in the New Testament to be found in Christ, having been united to Him by faith. I could read so many references. I'll just point to one, Philippians 3, 7-10. Here, Paul, uh, talking about how much he had gained, right, as, as a, a good Jewish man living in obedience to the law. He said, but whatever gain I had then from doing all of those things, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Those things that I once thought were precious are now garbage to me. In order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him. That is what Paul says. Here is the most precious thing at all of all. I must be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The flood narrative demonstrates that God will save His people in and by His chosen vehicle. This was true for Noah in an earthly sense. He was saved from the waters of the flood. But it is true for all who are in Christ in a spiritual one. We must be found in Him. And how do we come to be in Him? Or how do we come to be united to Him? It is through faith alone. We must believe that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through Him. We must believe that He is the only mediator between God and man. We must believe that because of our sin, we are not righteous before God. If we hope to stand before God righteous, we must receive a righteousness not our own, one that is apart from us, one that is distinct from us. It must become ours. We must be clothed with the righteousness of Christ received by faith. God will surely judge. He will save His people through His chosen vehicle, namely Christ Jesus our Lord. Thirdly, the flood demonstrates that in the end, God will make all things new. The flood demonstrates that in the end, God will make all things new. God brought a new world out of the waters of the flood. It was not the new heavens and the new earth, but it was a type of new heavens and new earth. The flood itself was an act of decreation, This is what I demonstrated to you in the previous sermon. Uh, Things were taken back to as they were in Genesis 1-2. It was an act of decreation. But when the floodwaters receded, a new world emerged. By this it was demonstrated that God is able to make all things new. In our text we read that God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The text says that God remembered Noah, not because he had forgotten him for a while, by the way. It's not like what you do when you're baking a cake in the oven, and then all of a sudden you remember that it's there, and it's too late. Uh, It's not that. When we read that God remembered Noah, it's not because he had forgotten him, but to highlight God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. God promised to sustain Noah And he was faithful to keep his word. He remembered Noah and did not forget him. That is the point. God is always faithful to keep his promises, friends. We must be reminded of that often. God made a wind blow over the earth. This language is reminiscent of the account of the creation of the world as recorded in Genesis 1. 
In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. That describes the world also as it was when the floodwaters covered it. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The word for spirit and the word for wind are the same in the Hebrew. It is the word ruach. And so this language is reminiscent of what God did in the earliest days of the world, to bring the world out of that watery chaos. Uh, I don't like that word chaos. I'm trying to uh, not use it from now on to describe that state. But that, that watery and un- uninhabitable state, uh, God, God's Spirit, God, God's Spirit was at work. Here we say, see that wind began to blow over the face of the water to cause the waters to subside. Notice also that everything that was done to flood the earth, is now undone here in verses 2 and following. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven were closed now. The rain from the heavens was now restrained. The waters receded from the earth continually. And in verse 3 we read, At the end of 150 days the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. We, we do not know the exact mountain. For the Hebrew might as well be translated the mountains of Ararat. It is a mountain range that is described here. And it was probably somewhere in what is today eastern Turkey, southern Russia, and northwestern Iran, to give you an idea of the region where this ark came to rest. More significant than knowing the precise location of the final resting place of the ark is the fact that the ark came to rest upon a mountain. Mountains are... Very significant in the scriptures, as you know. Eden was on a mountain. Abraham took Isaac up on a mountain, and a substitute was provided for him there. Moses received the law on a mountain. The temple in Jerusalem was built on a mountain. Ezekiel saw a vision of the eschatological temple on a mountain. Christ was transfigured on a mountain. Uh, The fact that the ark came to rest upon a mountain helps us to know what the ark was. It was a temple or sanctuary wherein Noah was blessed by the presence of God and was by him there preserved. Notice that it was after five months that the flood waters had abated. And in the seventh month and on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And at the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent the dove... And because the dove could find no place, nor did it have the strength of the raven to continue to, to, to um, soar there, it came back, and then Noah sent out the dove again. It brought back an olive leaf, and then again, and it did not return. Uh, this Noah did seven days after the previous activity, and then seven days again after that. Uh, so notice that Noah kept the Sabbath while on the ark. He lived according to that seven-day pattern established by God at creation. I am not saying that the text explicitly says Noah kept the Sabbath, but isn't it clear? God established that seven-day pattern at creation, and here Noah is found acting according to that seven-day pattern. Noah kept the Sabbath while on the ark. Notice Noah's connection with the creatures, by the way, and his tender care for them. Some commentators think that that dove that Noah sent out was almost like a personal pet to him. He was very tender towards this creature. He sent it out and received it back in. Uh, Christians should care for animals and for the environment. We should. 
Proverbs 12.10 says, Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. Uh, we should be like Noah in this regard. When the, when the dove brought Noah the olive leaf, he knew the, arth, the earth was beginning to dry out. When the dove did not return, he knew it was time to disembark. And we're told that in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. So when we compare Genesis 8, 13 through 14 with Genesis 7, 11, we learn that Noah, his family, and the animals were on the ark for about one whole year. They were on the ark for about a whole year. And then lastly, we read, When God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you everything, every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. It, it is hard to miss that the language in this passage is similar to the language of Genesis 1.28 and following. When God created Adam and Eve, He blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Uh, now we see that this language is present again in the text. The meaning is this. A new heavens and new earth have been brought out of the waters of the flood, and here we see a new humanity emerging. The flood was an act of decreation, but here we witness a recreation. There is therefore a distinction between the world that once was and the world that now is. This is how the scriptures divide all of human history into those two broad categories. The world as it was prior to the flood and the world uh, that now is, because here we have an act of recreation. Here we have the new heavens and earth, along with the new humanity typified before us. It will become very clear that this is not the new heavens and new earth, and certainly this is not the new humanity that comes walking off of the ark. It's going to become painfully clear as the narrative progresses and as men and women continue to struggle with sin. But here we have the new heavens and new earth and the new humanity typified. The new heavens and new earth will be earned not by Noah, but by Christ. And indeed, it's all who are found in Christ, not just those who are in the ark, who will enter into the new heavens and new earth, which will never fade at the end of time. Brothers and sisters, I want to make just a few points of application from this text before we conclude. One, I must ask, have you been renewed in Christ? Have you been renewed in Christ? Therefore, if anyone is, a, is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Have you been renewed in Christ? And if you have, have you been baptized as a profession of your faith? I, I want you to make this connection here that the waters of judgment are also present in Christian baptism. What are we to do when we baptize those who profess faith in Christ? We are to take them under the water which symbolizes God's judgment, God's wrath poured out in part. It symbolizes other things as well. 
But what are we to do? We are to also bring them up from those waters, up from that watery grave, uh, symbolizing the newness of their life in Christ Jesus. Are you a new creature in Christ Jesus? Do you have faith in Him? Have you been united to Him by faith? Have you entered into Him? If the answer is yes, then have you been baptized as a profession of your faith according to the command of Scripture? You must be baptized. The Scriptures say, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins is what the New Testament urges. And so I press that question to you. Are you a new creature in Christ and have you been baptized as a profession of your faith? Have you been baptized in order to symbolize that you have passed through the waters of judgment in Christ Jesus and have been shielded from them? Two, do you appreciate all that has been provided for us in Christ Jesus? I hope that the Lord's Day Sabbath is truly that for you, a Sabbath rest, where you cease from your normal recreations and your normal employment, and you give yourself to the worship of God. And I pray that you reflect upon what has been preached this morning and what you know of Christ from your personal reading of the Scriptures. I pray that you would stand in awe of all that has been provided for us in Christ Jesus. He makes all things new. He will one day bring us into a new heavens and a new earth. He has also renewed you. Indeed, we are rich in Christ Jesus. Noah and his family were saved in an ark from floodwaters. And they worshipped, thankfully, after they disembarked. How much more so should we worship our God and be thankful before Him for what we have in Christ Jesus? He is the one who has cleansed us from our sins. He has made us new. He will bring us safely home to the new heavens and new earth. Three, I wonder, do you appreciate the patience of God? God was patient in the days prior to the flood, and He is patient even now. It is true we might grow tired of living in a fallen and sinful world. We might wonder, where is the Lord? When will He return to make all things new? But we should stand in appreciation of the patience of God, knowing that it's through His patience that He is going to bring His people to repentance. And connected to that, and fourthly, I wonder, are you proclaiming the gospel? Uh, This is why the Lord has not yet returned. It's so that the gospel might be proclaimed, so that His people might be brought to salvation. And so, are you busy, are you diligent to hold forth Christ as the vehicle for our salvation? Are you preaching this gospel to the world, to those you have contact with? The Lord will come to judge the wicked on the last day. And who are the wicked? They are not just the exceedingly wicked amongst us, but they are all who have violated God's law in thought, word, and deed. And so that means that you are wicked before God. You are unrighteous. From from birth, all the intentions and thoughts of your heart have been evil continuously. Do you see it? The law helps us to see it. But God has provided a Savior. His name is Christ Jesus. Be united to Him. Enter into Him. Be shielded from the wrath of God to come. Receive His righteousness. Enter into life eternal. Preach the gospel to the world. We must also preach it to one another. Every Lord's Day and even between Lord's Days, we must encourage one another to persevere in Christ. We must remind one another of this gospel. And we must preach it also to our children. Fathers, are you being diligent to preach the gospel to your children? Are you urging them to be found in Christ? Mothers, are you presenting the teaching of Scripture to your children? Are you urging them to pursue Christ faithfully? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. If you have been reconciled to Christ, you now have 
the ministry of reconciliation, you have this task to proclaim the gospel to those who do not yet believe. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making His appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians five seventeen through 21 Two more points of application. I ask, are you living a holy life, brothers and sisters? I have asked that question, I think, every time I have preached about Noah. He was a herald of righteousness. He walked before the Lord blameless. This is what we are to pursue. And I would commend to you again that study that we have been progressing through prior to uh, the worship service and the Emmaus Essentials Hour. It is so important, brothers and sisters, that we pursue holiness in the Christian life. Read that book, listen to those teachings, pursue holiness with all that is in you. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord, the Scriptures say. Six, do you have the worship of the one true God as the highest aim of your life? I think it is very significant that the very first thing Noah did when he disembarked from that ark was built an altar and worship God. Clearly, the glory of God, the worship of God, was His highest aim. And so I ask you, is the worship of the one true God the highest aim of your life? Are you living for His glory or your own? They built an altar first thing. We should make that our first priority, the worship of God. We are to worship God in the whole of life, of course. We are to offer ourselves up to God as living sacrifices. But of course, we are to worship also as He has prescribed. That is, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, or we are to gather together with the saints, to worship God in word and in spirit. With that, let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the pattern that has been presented to us by you uh, in the days from creation to Noah. Uh, Here we see without a doubt that in response to the sin of humanity, you will surely judge, you will surely bring your people safely home through your chosen vehicle, Christ Jesus our Lord. God, we also see most plainly, that you will make all things new. Lord, we long for the new heavens and new earth. We agree with Peter that this is the thing we hope in, a new heavens and a new earth. And so, God, we say, make us faithful in the here and now, but come quickly, we pray. These things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all of God's people say, Amen.